standing for a reading of God's Word. People of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Our text this morning will be Matthew 23, verses 13 through 33. And if you're visiting, uh, you're welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we want you to understand that uh, the church is, is subject to Christ in all things, and especially to the Word of Christ. And so what you find before you are songs that have, are rich in Scripture, prayers that, that are rich in Scripture, uh, uh, preaching that is hopefully agreeable to, to Scripture, and the reading of Scripture. And what we do is we, we want to, uh, as we minister to you, we want to deliver the whole counsel of God to you. That means we will select a book of the Bible and we'll go through that book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We'll read it carefully and then we will explain the meaning of it. And hopefully with the Lord's grace, by His Spirit, uh, we will give you some uh, idea of what it means in your life by application. Uh, that's the agenda. The Lord has the full agenda. May He have our hearts as well. Let's give attention to the Word of God, which is ineffably inerrant and beyond description in its purity and its loveliness. Matthew 23 beginning with verse 13. Our Lord is speaking. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel sea and land, to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who says, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is in the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier things of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men, dead people's bones and are all uncleanness. 
And so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and dedicate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. And thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape the sentence of hell? Thus reading of God's holy, ineffable, inerrant word. All flesh is as grass and its beauty is as the flower of the field. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. This is the word of God that was just read to you by his help and by his grace. Will be preached. Please be seated. You know, on the Resurrection Sunday that we like to call Easter, some of us like to call it Easter, we typically uh, deal with <clears throat> anthems and themes related to the mighty resurrection of Christ. Uh, but I hope that as in this church, that resurrection will always be proclaimed every Sunday. Every Sunday of the Lord's Day is the day the Bible... Uh, the Bible instructs us to rejoice, to gather together, because as we come together as God's people, we come together as his body, and as it, was, and as it is, we proclaim the Lord's resurrection by coming together. The invisible church all around the world becomes visible at one body. And so I you know, hesitated before I went through and, and, and do what I always do. I preach sequential expository sermons. And uh, when I came to this section, I thought, well, is this an Easter sermon? Well, all sermons are Easter sermons. And I thought, well, two, two people may, may profit by this reading. The first is, is the Christian who perhaps doesn't understand the law sufficiently to hear the law as the Spirit would have us to understand it in the inward man and to realize that if we were to search our hearts by the light of God's word, that we would find plenty of failure, plenty of self-righteousness, and plenty of hypocrisy still there. And we say that uh, not gloating and not boasting. We, we, we suffer with the remnants of sin. We, we mortify the old man. We put to death the deeds of the flesh. But we have to say, there's enough in us to be as dangerous as these grown-up vipers and serpents in this, in this passage. If we're not watchful, we can become uh, very much expressing outward hypocrisy as well. But that's the first person that can benefit by this passage. The second one, is if you're a visitor, if you're not a Christian, or perhaps you are a Christian, but you haven't been to church in a long time, I think one of the main reasons people are not coming to church or have dropped out of church and just give up on churches is because they come up against so many stumbling blocks of people making profession, but not really showing the fruit of it. In other words, hypocrisy in the church is a tremendous stumbling block for the growth of the kingdom. And uh, such a visitor who's perhaps visiting a church, hoping, hoping that they won't get burned by hypocrites, well, maybe see that we're serious 
about confessing sin, all sin, and that we are serious in delivering the whole counsel of God, even when it doesn't feel feel right. We go to the doctor, he he stings us with a needle, hypodermic needle. We We don't ever stop going to the doctor's. And we come to this church and we, we're corrected. And there's a sting to this, direction, to this uh, correction. And that's what we have in the scripture today. So I hope if you're visiting, you'll see that hey, there's, there's hope as long as the word of God is preached to hypocrites, that they and we and I, we will all turn and we will be sincere. God, the Lord will forgive us and we go on. Let me uh, let you know that the context here is very important. This is the last week of Jesus' life. He has entered Jerusalem uh, mounted on a, on a donkey, humble. He's been acclaimed as Messiah. Uh, the children, even infants, you know, praising him, shouting hosannas. That was his triumphal entry. He went immediately into the temple area where he began to purge uh, the various malpractices of his day there. People were using that area not as the court of the Gentiles that the nations might approach and learn of God and hear his word and, 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 and see the sacrifices all pointing to Christ. That was a special area that the Jew was to use that he, they might make true proselytes as they seek God and as God is drawing them in his spirit, even in the Old Testament. But what Jesus found there is a, is a marketplace People profiting out of religion. Uh, people having uh, money. There's money changers and, and uh, the various other practices that needed to be corrected. He overturned the tables, the money changers, uh, and he uh, set about correcting what was amiss in the temple. We, 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 we noted also that uh, by doing so, he, he incurred not merely the scrutiny of the religious leaders, mostly Sadducees and, and the families of the, of the high priests, uh, but uh, the Pharisees also, and they took him to task in various uh, disputes here in chapter 22. We hear, him, uh, we hear them coming and offering uh, difficult questions that might be embarrassing or politically, uh, political dilemma, dilemmas, horns of a dilemma. And yet Jesus shines brightly in answering all sorts of questions, manifesting his wisdom, manifesting his knowledge, uh, and uh, undaunted and loving his people, and in bringing them the goodness of all the kingdom. And of course, the goodness of all his kingdom is himself. Jesus is all the good of the kingdom of God. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's boldly teaching in the temple area before the crowd. He also has his disciples there. And uh, the scribes and Pharisees are close in, they're pressing in, and they're all in the hearing of this, this section that was just read. Now, the teaching here, if you were to uh, bring one point home, is this, that religious hypocrites are are really abominable to God. Religious hypocrites are, well, they're the lowest of the low. Religious hypocrites are the very very hub of the spoke of hell, of 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 the wheel of hell. They are an abomination to God. And when discovered, that is to say, when their hypocrisy is unmasked, that's what I mean by discovered, when, hypoc- when hypocrites and their hypocrisy are unmasked, they must be publicly denounced for corrupting the faith and, for, and they must be threatened with judgment. And in the case of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus himself judging, they are threatened with 
imminent judgment. Imminent judgment. On that. So, so let me preach this. First point. Do we have how many points do we have in this sermon? Uh, we have two, two points. So the second point is long. The first point is not long. We see here that Jesus denounces religious uh, hypocrites. He denounces all of the hypocrisy in the leaders. And he does so not in a corner, not by murmuring and whispering and just gossip. He does it quite openly. He is denouncing religious hypocrites openly and in vehement terms. He is vehemently. Uh, You will notice that Scripture has various voicings and Jesus has various voicings. Our gentle Savior can be most welcoming to sinners, to to prostitutes, to, to tax collectors who are cheaters. And, and uh, swindlers and liars. And yet he is open to helping them as they are open to his instruction. And so he can woo and he can comfort those that come to him. He can offer peace. He, he is God's reconciler. He is, he's, he's a peacemaker. But my friends, he also has some sterning, some stern voices. He can... He can warn people, and he does. He can correct people, and he does. He he can rebuke and admonish people. And beyond all that, what the Lord here shows us, that he is also able to judge with full righteousness, because he alone can judge the very intentions of the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. He can judge, and he can condemn. Now, that's something that we cannot do. We cannot see the heart. But Jesus can. And what he's showing us here is something of his magnificent prophetic office, but to the highest exponent. Because even prophets can only declare what the Lord the Spirit has, has, has revealed to them. But the Lord Jesus here, being the divine God-man, uh, can, uh, can see what's going on and make a right judgment. He is the king, and he is the coming king who will judge all the world in righteousness of the last day. So Jesus denounces religious hypocrites openly and vehemently using a very stern and condemning voice and countenance. Why? Well, for their manifest and for their pernicious errors. Now, it's, no, it's one thing for Jesus to appear and all of a sudden overturn the tables and, and be, be correcting everybody, but he's been at this for three years. They've had plenty of time to ask questions. They have had plenty of time to examine his character. They have plenty of time to sit together, and as Isaiah says, come, let's come, let's come together. Let's, let's be reasonable together. Let's reason together. And though your sins are as scarlet, I'll make them white as wool. The, the, Lord will, the Lord will draw us, and he wants us to engage. But no, they persist in their hard, hard hearts and stiff-necked ways and dangerous ways. Ways that are dangerous to themselves and to others. They are manifestly evil at this point. The Lord knows it because they know their heart and he he knows the intentions of their heart and their errors are pernicious and obvious. And so here he declares woe, a woe. And there are seven woes. Now what is a woe in scripture? A woe is a pronunciation, a declaration of God's extreme displeasure and not only that, uh, that it is a warning of imminent, imminent judgment. That is to say, he's not saying, look, uh, 
as, as we do every, every Sunday, the Lord is coming. He will judge the, the world at the last day in inequity. All men will be called to account for every word, thought, and deed that they've done or omitted to do, have been done. So the, the, the bad that they've done, the good that they've omitted to be done. That's, that's coming. And the Lord will judge us all very righteously. And the, the judge of all the world will do well. But this is different. When a prophet says, woe, and uh, when Jesus says, woe, it means you're, you're, it's the ninth round. You, you, you only have a few other more rounds, and you're about to get knocked out. You're, 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 going, you're going down on the tarp. You know, you're going down. That's what woe means. There are, excuse me, there are eight woes to this, and, and the symmetry, I think, is very balanced because of the eight blessings announced in the Beatitudes. The Lord Jesus, in preaching the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, uh, gave, uh, gave us uh, a description of, of the life, the life of the believer in the kingdom of God. And they were, and the, the Beatitudes are, are so lofty, and, and they are so penetratingly spiritual and robust that some, some Christians, young Christians will say, well, this can't be me. I'm not in this picture at all. No, it's not maybe you now. But by the Spirit's grace, after he has justified you and completely accepted you in Christ, has absolved your sins, he's forgiven your sins, he's, he's justified you, you are a child of God forever, you will never be condemned. And then he, by, the, by the placing of the Holy Spirit, he begins to work in you. And the life that is being expressed in the Sermon on the Mount is the life of Christ. And that's the kingdom life. And uh, as you mature, and that life is more and more pronounced, although it's never perfected in his life. Well, these leaders should have had, should have had some experience in that life. They have had Moses and the prophets that have Jesus with them for three years, just as the disciples have had. And yet the symmetry there is so much missing. The announcement of blessings in the beginning of Matthew and the, and the horror of the opposite pronunciations of woes and judgments. It's an utter failure on the part of the Jewish people, uh, represented, of course, by the way, we're Presbyterians. We, we look for representation everywhere. Uh, that's why we believe in a covenant, a covenantal theology. The, a covenant, one man uh, represents all the world, Adam, in the flesh. And one man represents all of mankind who believe and have union with him in the spirit in, uh, in the kingdom of heaven. Two men, and that's the way covenant works. But the woes here are addressed to the leaders because it's a covenanted nation and these are the leaders of God's people. And they need to be decried for their utter failure. Utter, utter, utter failure. They have not understood not only Jesus, but they have not understood Moses and the prophets. That is why they do not understand Jesus. Eight woes, symmetry, again, lopsided, very left to the eight blessings of the Beatitudes. He condemns them as hypocrites, seven times. And of course that number is, is one of perfection, meaning complete hypocrisy. Uh, does it mean that they could not be even more hypocritical? Yes, they're going to be even more hypocritical. The reason is, in the next, uh, by God's grace, if I preach the, uh, the, coming, uh, the coming passage, 
you'll see that their hypocrisy will be pitched even higher and, and harder and that the Lord will judge them even further by sending them more holy men. And they too will harden their hearts against those. It's, it's like the 10 plagues of Egypt, of Exodus. Complete hypocrisy. He twice calls them blind guides, fools and blind. We have to be very careful, my friends, at this word fool. The Lord warns us. The Lord warns us not, not to do this with other men. And yet he's doing this himself. Is he himself being a hypocrite? No, because he is the only one that can judge a right. He knows both what is done and what is the intention behind what they're doing and their motives and their hearts. He sees the hatred of God and the hatred of all mankind and the selfish, sinful love of self. He sees it all. The, the king's eyes winnow his nation. And Jesus is winnowing the crowds, his disciples and the Pharisees and Sadducees. He once calls them serpents, a generation of vipers, which of course brings back the very first promise of the gospel, where the seed of the woman will strike the head of the serpent. And all of the offspring of the serpent will die uh, at the hands of Messiah, the seed of of Eve, of the woman. You see here that Jesus is the great prophet that was anticipated in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, oh, excuse me, the Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. But he's also a prophet that judges because, because he is the king. He is the king. And he's not like you and I, who when we judge, we have to withhold judgment. We have to go through process. He's told us how we are to benefit others before we even attempt to take the plank out of their eye. We have to judge ourselves first. We have to go slow. We have to speak to our brothers. You have the whole process in Matthew 18. And so, my friends, don't try this at home. This is, not an, this is, in, this is one area where you cannot imitate Jesus. But you don't know why your Sunday school teacher did what she did. You don't know why, children, your parents have done what they have done. You don't know why your elder voted this way in the session. You do not know why your pastor preaches the way he does. You don't. And so you are to refrain and to exalt, and you are to rather exalt the Lord as the one who, only one who has perfect vision and perfect wisdom and knowledge. Jesus denounces rich, religious hypocrisy openly and in vehement terms. The second point, the long point, and I'll, I'll go through this at a faster pace. Jesus denounces religious hypocrites, uh, and he has eight charges. Now, you need to understand what charges are. They're specific breaches of the law. He said, well, that's a bad thing to do. To come. No, it's a good thing. When you, when you call somebody's character into question... You don't say, oh, that man, look, you know, he, I has, he has character issues. It's not fair. What you need to do is tell them, look, you, I saw you stealing stamps from your secretary. Okay, well, that's a chargeable offense, right? I saw you run off with a book from uh, the nursery, and you didn't put it back. Well, that's a chargeable offense, okay? You don't denounce people as liars. You don't denounce people uh, until you you bring a particular charge. And if you can't particularize it with witnesses, 
and descriptions of where this law and that applied, or even if it is a law. You can't condemn people for not going, for instance, to, to, not, Wednesday, uh, to not going to Wednesday Bible, night, uh, Bible studies. You can't do that. There's no law in Scripture that says you have to attend Bible studies on Wednesday nights. All right, that, that's a particular charge, and that one fails. But Jesus will not fail bringing up eight charges. Here's what we have. Corresponding to the eight woes, we have eight charges. First of all, for the opposition of, uh, to Jesus' gospel. They, they were set against the Lord and against his anointed. And so by setting themselves against the good news, beginning with the proclamation of repentance, they declined to enter the blessed heavens, the blessed kingdom of God, which was the hope of all Israel. They declined, and uh, making matters worse, they made it hard, they got it in the way of others to also proceed to enter. Now, my friends, it's one thing to say, you know, I, I, I'm here at Covenant, but I, I just don't like this. I don't, li I don't agree with Reformed teaching. I don't know where they get the doctrine of predestination. I don't know where are they getting these things. It's one thing to stay there and you're, you're quiet, but it's another thing to go against the purposes of a Reformed and Presbyterian church. It's another thing altogether. Uh, because if you, if you don't agree with all that uh, a denomination explicitly and frankly confesses at what it believes, then you, you're welcome to be here. You don't have to be an officer here and subscribe all these doctrines, but you should remain open and quiet. But please don't get in the way of obstructing people who are trying to do the best to work out that system of doctrine that they really, truly, sincerely believe this is what the teaching of Scripture is. Just get out of the way so that other people don't stumble over you as you're lying down uh, on, the, on the wayside. But these were in opposition to Jesus' Gospels. They got in the way of others. And we get in the way of others if we are not polite, if we don't greet our visitors, if we don't have any interest in other people. We, this is a sanctuary of the saints. The saints are to love one another and increasingly more. You are to abound in love, not just the members of the church, but anyone who has an interest in Christ. And so why, why would anybody feel like they've come here and not at least seen some semblance or some interest in loving them? We need, to make, we need to make sure that we are not a stumbling block in the church, let alone outside. Or otherwise people will just say, well, why join that religion? That it's all hypocrites. So the first woe is against their opposition to the, the, the gospel that Jesus preached. And of course, Jesus' gospel is none other than the gospel that has always been anticipated from the Old Testament. Jesus denounces these hypocrites for their covetousness and for their self-aggrandizement. They're all about themselves. They're all about finding out what is uh, their advantage. They are greedy. It's like the leech. What does the leech want? The leech wants more and more. The leech wants more and more. They, they preyed on the wicked, on the, excuse me, they preyed on the weak. That is to say, they, they, they went hunting for them to devour them and to strip them of everything they had before they died so that you know, they, they might have something for themselves. Weak, defenseless women, and these were supposed to be leaders, these were supposed to be servants, these were supposed to be examples. But they were wolves. Wolves don't benefit the sheep. Wolves eat the sheep. 
And, but they are very stealth. They are very clever. They're very, very coy at it. And all the while they are disguised with great devotion. And they are, they are actors. Hypocrites are theatrical actors. They're, they're theater personnel. They don a mask, which is one of happiness. But inside, they're ready to tear you up. They're angry. While affecting great devotion and piety in their public prayers. They're one thing in public, but when you get them alone in their homes and their, in their uh, prayer, prayer closets, they really don't. They really have no interest in, in really uh, being with God and delighting in God. And so they are condemned. The third, not only opposition to the gospel and covetousness, self-aggrandizement for their schism, for their party spirit. They, they, la- they labored. They worked hard. They were tireless and traveled far and wide to bring others not into the religious uh, covenant necessarily of the Jews, but for their religious party, for their sect. And then they could be admired. Of course, now when a Pharisee makes a proselyte, the Sadducees, oh, no. When the Sadducees make a proselyte, the Pharisees, oh, no. They're against one another. They're vying for one another. And as I preached, uh, I think it was last week, the reason that we have so many sects is because we're in the flesh. If the Lord would sanctify us and give us the mind of Christ, there would only be one church in the world. And it's a tremendous testimony of the abiding sin of all churches from the time of the apostles that we seem not to be able to agree on very important things in the church. Well, that's our shame, not the shame of the Word of God, nor the Spirit of God that is clear. And the, the Word of God, of course, is altogether uh, perspicuous. That is to say, there's a see-through, a, a see-throughableness, a clarity, if we would just have the mind of God. They labored so far and wide to bring others, but they, they wanted to benefit their little party, their little tribe. They were missionaries, but they failed. <clears throat> in the second question that's asked of every ordinary man in the Presbyterian Church, what are your motives for going into the ministry? That, my friends, is the hardest question that anyone aspiring to be a minister will ever be asked. That is a hard question. You, we need to answer that. Am I doing this because it's a, it's a respectable job and I have my own hours? Uh, the pay is, uh, but, uh, but at, least, uh, uh, at, at least I'll get some attention and I can, I can have a voice in things. They were missionaries, but not out of the love of God. In fact, they didn't even know God. Why do you say that, Lou? Well, because God appears. Jesus is God in flesh. They had no idea whom they were talking to. No idea. And even if he wasn't God, he was just a, a neighbor Jew. They had no regard for that guy either. They hated God and they hated neighbor, neighbor far, far uh, worse than, uh, than they would love themselves. All they did was uh, promote self. It's a party spirit, a party tribal spirit. It's written all over Protestant denominationalism. We've given up on the idea of a unified Christian faith long ago. And that's our shame. Because there's only one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And we need to remember that. And we need, we need to ask the Lord for his, for his spirit and for a revival, that he would heal the wounds of his own bride. The fourth is not only opposition to the, uh, 
to the gospel, covetousness, self-aggrandizement, schism, party spirit, but also making unjust and unholy distinctions with regard to holy vows. And you know, you, you and I, we will all be judged. We will be either vindicated or we will condemned by our own words. And here they take holy vows, vows that are said before the Lord, saying, when you take a vow, you say, may the Lord himself judge me here and now if this and this is not true. That's what you're saying when you're vowing. When you, when you join a church, you're taking a vow. And we'll rehearse that some other time. I don't want to make the application there. But, but vows are serious things. And here they, te- they teach that some vows, uh, per se, were much more binding than others. But Jesus said, let your yes be yes in the Sermon on the Mount, and your no be no. And then he draws distinction between the gold and the temple. Why? Well, the gold is a commodity that can be manipulated with their hands, and you can sue people. But who's going to sue anybody over the temple? It's too big. Nobody owns it. And so practically speaking, you can't, uh, you can't uh, see the justice in it. You'll never get your money back from a man that swears by the temple. It's impractical. These people don't even understand the blasphemy that is going on here. That just because God won't have equity in this life doesn't mean he won't have equity in the coming, in the coming life. <coughs> they completely fail the third commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain. Anything that the Lord has sanctified to himself by his name is holy, and they profane it. They profane holy things. They bring these things into contempt, and that's a violation of the third commandment, and it's against God. And uh, the Lord has warned uh, he, that he will by no means, uh, uh, even, if, if, even if they should be excused by men, but he will hold them guilty to the third and fourth generation. He will hold them guilty who takes his name in vain. They stressed outward religion, sacrifice, through alms and oblations, and especially things that they can that, that clink when they go into a cop, uh, coffers. Clink, clink, clink. Oh, there's a lot of coins there. Oh, he's a, he's a righteous man. They stress sacrifice through alms and oblations more than obedience. And in that, they do follow Saul, the great persecutor of David. So they make unjust and unholy distinctions in sacred things. Sanctifying things that are already sanctifying. And, well, anyway, this is the idea. God separates things as holy and unholy. These people make holy things unholy, and that's their blasphemy. For their sanctimonious ignorance, Jesus pronounces a woe, a, a fanatical emphasis on trifles and fine delicacies of religion while omitting the really heavy lifting that is needed to judge, to rule, to lead God's people. They needed to be aware of Micah 6 You know, what's, what does the Lord require of us? 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn? Huh? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is, is that what God wants? A tremendous show of my sorrow and of my religiosity? No, he just wants you to be, to appreciate his graciousness. He wants you to love his mercy. He wants you to keep equity with your neighbor. He wants you to walk humbly with him. Micah 6, 8, hear the same thing. They, they'll strain at a gnat 
Oh, no, that's defiling. I, I, there's an insect. Oh, no. Then they argue, is this a clean insect? Or do I throw out the soup? Can I strain it and, and eat the soup? And they have a caucus. And what do we do with the soup, guys? What do you, what do you, is it kosher? Huh? They'll strain it in that. And they'll go outdoors and they'll try to eat a camel. Uncooked, unbaked, unseasoned. They'll try to swallow that. It's ridiculous. But that's what they do with the religion. They've lost all equity of fairness and are inept at any kind of rule. They're thinking themselves to be practical. They've become the most ridiculous of leaders. And then sixth and seventh points I'll conflate together for pretending outward purity without inward purity of heart. Everything they'd look at is, is external. Neglect of purity of thought, never ever stopping to judge, well, what, what, how are my affections? Where, where is my heart leading? What, what direction does this go? Is this towards love? Is this towards peace? Is this towards unity in the church? What are my motives? Do I want, do I, can I really rejoice when even my enemy rejoices? Am I blessing my enemies? Oh, are you? Is that why you haven't spoken with them for like two years? Is, is that how you bless and greet one another with a holy kiss? Yeah. Are you a hypocrite? Are you a hypocrite? Neglect of purity of thought. Neglect of, uh, of pure motions. Affections, motives. But to men, they, they, to men they appeared great. They appeared white. Gleaming white tombstones. Now, look, you don't understand. I don't think you've ever seen the consequences. of If we had five Pharisees here, your, your instinct and reflex would be to immediately, immediately nominate them for officers in the church because they are outstanding in outward religion. Always at church. The doors open, boom, they're fives. Where are they? They're right here. They're always standing up and praying. And they give heavily to the church. But let a poor person be in trouble. They have no sympathy. Let someone cross them. It's war. It's war. So to, to men, they appear gleaming white. To God, they appear exceedingly black. And my friends, if we would only judge ourselves, we would not be judged by God. In other words, let me put this negatively. If you are prone to defend yourself as boasting and, and being righteous in any department, in any commandment whatsoever, as if you have attained even partially, all right, your boast is made along the lines of not the covenant of grace, which announces the only righteousness that exists is the righteousness of Christ. It's yours imputed to you freely when you believe in Christ. God receives us as righteous in His sight because Jesus is righteous and He will embrace you as His own righteous Son. But if you are to boast, if you think you're something when you're not, you love being called teacher and rabbi, instructor and all this, and you're not, then you are boasting in the flesh and that is the covenant of works, that is the feature, that is the, that is the, that is the very uh, litmus test of whether you understand grace or of whether you are still under the covenant of works and damned for your self-righteousness. Number eight, for their ignorant and superstitious veneration of dead saints. 
Oh, well, I'm glad we're not Catholic here, right? I'm glad we're not Roman Catholic because we certainly don't venerate dead saints, do we? No. No, we don't. We don't. We don't. We don't do this, do we? We don't build up the tombs of the prophets and the righteous men, do we? Uh, well, Calvin's grave, surely not. But boy, Wesley sure got some nice, some nice splendor to his grave. They liked the dead saints. They hated the living saints. They remembered the old ones as if those were the good old days. And uh, of course, Ecclesiastes warns us, there's, there are no good old days. There's nothing new under the sun. I'll give, you, I'll give you a very practical illustration. How many people do you know have gone to the Holy Land? This is a popular time of year to be there. Some already coming back. They go to the Holy Land and they look at all the beautiful monuments and they go to the various geological sites everywhere that the tourist guide who's Jewish, by the way, or Palestinian, not even Christian, but they'll, they'll, they'll show you what the, the Christian religion is all about. They'll take you to all the stones, all the dead stones, all the monuments of old, you have incredible interest in all these things. But not once will you pause and, and ask that instructor or leader, can you show me a living church? Where is a Christian church where I might see living stones? And so you too build up monuments. And you are hypocrites if you don't love the saints more than the emblems of religion. They liked the dead saints. They loved. They hated the living saints, and they had no no love for Christ themselves. They they even self-identified. <laughs> you know, I tell you what. If if you're going to make a, an identification, who who do you identify with? Hopefully, you will be able to say, uh, you know, I really identify with uh, with Isaiah, or I can identify with David and his temptations, but also with some of his triumphs. You know, you identify with. With those, and you're the sons, you might say, of Abraham. Yeah, you identify with this being a son of Abraham. These guys identified it, themselves, self-identified as sons of those who killed the prophets. Can you, <laughs> do you know what's in their mouth? What, just, what did they just say? They self-affirmed to be the seed of the serpents who are always against the Lord and, is against, and against his anointed from the very beginning. Those are the eight woes. And that's why the Lord condemns. Now, hypocrisy is abominable to, in the sight of God. But such was the state of the Jewish leadership of that day. And you, need, you need to understand this. You need to be very, very certain of this because the Lord does not wipe out a nation nilly-willy. And he doesn't scatter his covenant people nilly-willy. But that's exactly what he did within 40 years of this preaching in the text. Hypocrisy is an abomination. And this also explains why he's gotten under their skin. He's gotten them really agitated. He's shaken up that beehive, but badly. And they will take him with unjust and wicked hands. And they will scourge him and they will shame him and they will strip him and they will spit on him and they will flog him and they will crucify and kill him. This explains then Jesus' death in just a, next, a few days here from this, from this preaching in the passage. It also explains the coming devastation, the destruction of Jerusalem. No accident. And it is a warning to all churches reading this gospel not to consider themselves so, so tightly the sons of Abraham as to be beyond inspection whether the fruit in the vineyard is good and is, is, is palatable and is pleasing to God or whether 
you are void of goodness as a church and liable to judgment, liable for your lampstand to be removed. Read Revelation chapters 2 and 3 for that. At the conclusion, religious hypocrites are an abomination to God. And when they are discovered, they must be publicly denounced for corrupting the faith and threatened with judgment. Maybe not imminent judgment as, uh, as Jesus could, could foretell, but certainly with judgment. My friends, you need to understand, are you placing the right weight? <sighs> it's a matter of wisdom. It is a matter of priority. But are you wise in placing the importance of obedience over sacrifice? Of being merciful rather than being right? Of charity to all men? And, and not, not to those who are most like you. Do you confess your sins daily? Your failures? Do you do it with, with people that know you well? They, they know you, you. They know when you fail. Why not, why not confess it? Freely, voluntarily. Are you, are you majoring in minors in the church? Or what, to what? Look at your bookshelves. What are you giving most attention to in your Christian devotions? Church state relations? What, 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 are, you, what are your bookshelves full of? Biblical theology mapping up, mapping out the end times, and now you, now you understand the eschatology, huh? right? My friends, there's very little weight given in the Bible to eschatology. And our forefathers of Westminster had very little they could confess by any way of consensus. You should, be, you should be majoring on love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit, justice in keeping the commandments of the second table of the law, true piety in keeping the first table of the law. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there's always evening services here when I'm preaching through the book of Exodus. Examine yourself to see if you are conforming to Jesus and his religion or to the religion of the flesh perfected by unbelieving Jews. I will say this, that unconverted ministers and leaders, uh, it's deplorable. It's deplorable wickedness. And we've had, uh, uh, this, the, ch the church has always perennially been plagued by this. And by God's grace, some, some leaders, some elders, and some ministers, some deacons discover themselves not to be Christian and, and repent even while they're in office. I, I, I know I could mention a name right now that you would know. A, a very well-known preacher says, no, I was preaching, but I was not converted. And these are stumbling blocks. You know, because outside they appear right, but in the right, at the right context, the old man comes out and wrecks. It's a wrecking ball in the church. Insincere and unrepentant Christians invite God's discipline. But insincere and unrepentant ministers who are unconverted and elders, they invite not only the discipline of the church, but they invite wrath. They invite wrath on the church because they're under the covenant of works and subject to wrath. And fury. And of course, the solution to hypocrisy is not to avoid church because you might become a hypocrite. The solution to hypocrisy is not uh, avoiding to make a profession of faith. That's, not, that's no solution. Atheists are hypocrites. In fact, I would say atheists are even more hypocritical because they think they're wiser than Jesus in offering a free kingdom to those who repent. And they're wiser than Jesus and who calls us to assembly. 
every Sunday, but they're wiser. And they judge others for their hypocrisy. If you're not in church, you're a bigger hypocrite. Pure and sincere religion, then, continued, re, re, continue, uh, continued repentance, striving, a perpetual warfare, as our Elder Thomas mentioned, a, a perpetual war against the flesh, against the Satan, against the world, striving for perfection, sincere desire for perfection and holiness by the help and grace of the Holy Spirit. That's the solution. So review the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and judge yourself by these two bookends. Where am I in the spectrum? Sermon on the Mount, Spirit. The woes of chapter 23, flesh. How are you doing? Measure yourself on that scale. Be in secret prayer. And you may also, if you can say it before the Lord in sincerity, pray this prayer from Psalm 119 or sing Sing Psalm 119. Sing Psalm 119 in your family worship. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may, I may not be put to shame. This is what happens. That when the, with the Lord, after much, much correction, much rebuke, much instruction, by and by, if you're, not, if you're not listening, if you're not turning, if you're not you're repenting, the next step, my friend, is, is shame. Shame comes before judgment to the children of God. If you're not a child of God, you'll see both shame and judgment on the last day. Naked, before angels and men, exposed without one single excuse for turning away from mercy in Christ, for despising neighbor, for judging everybody, including Jesus and others, as much less wise, much less righteous than yourself. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that is to say, in your commandments and rules, your ordinances, that I may not be put to shame. But if you would humble yourself and shame yourself now, if you would once again learn how to blush upon reading God's law, then he will certainly have mercy on you because he gives grace to the humble. With a proud, he utterly, utterly will cast down in contempt. Now, how do you do that? You need the Spirit. And for the Spirit, you will need to receive it from the Lord Jesus. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest upon his righteousness. Receive the offer of salvation in our resurrected King. And, uh, and he will lead you as the triumphant head of the church and your teacher, your prophet, your priest interceding for us all, for you all the time and, and, and cleansing you by his blood. And then as your, your king always leading you, prophet, priest, and king, all you have, all you need is the Lord Jesus. And it's all yours by faith. That is to say, trusting and receiving him. That's the gospel. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and your house, you and your household will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we are aghast when we see how far flesh can take us, how hellish we all are apt to become, except by your grace. We pray, Lord, that we would ever listen to you, that we not be put to shame, especially in public this way. 
We pray that, Lord, rather you would be delighted that you would dance and rejoice over your people as those who are yours, not perfected in this life, but sincere and looking at your statutes and, and expecting, Lord, help, forgiveness, and further, and further holiness by your Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that this would be the, the case and the, the sincere and honest prayer of everyone here. And we pray that you would be glorified as the judge of all men and our great prophet at the day when you at last appear in all your glorious, glorious strength with all your fiery angels. And on that day, Lord, help us then to not be ashamed, but to rejoice greatly. For, Lord, we love your appearing. All who are blessed in Christ love your appearing. Speak to us again. Speak to our consciences. Do not let us go, Lord. We plead, and we plead, Lord, that you would be glorified in your church throughout all ages in Christ Jesus. To you be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's have the deacons have the offering, please. receive these gifts from your worshipers. And just, Lord, as you have given yourself to us fully, we pray that we would worship you in that same spirit and give ourselves fully to you, holy, acceptable to you, sanctified in the blood of Christ, and, uh, Lord, received and walking by you. Receive us, your worshipers, first. Receive your worshipers' gifts. Through your, through your blessing, Lord, now make these gifts to be abundantly sufficient for us here, for our neighborhood, for charity, for sympathy, and for missions for all, Lord, uh, your statutes and ordinances that bring glory to you wherever you have your gospel prosper. And we pray it, we pray this blessing in Jesus, and for his name's sake, amen. Let's sing our last anthem. <clears throat> blessing and honor. <clears throat> 